And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Sam Khan. I'm an associate editor of Persuasion. And I wanted to talk about my recent piece, Our Deep Blue Ops Lessons on AI, Creativity, and Chess. This was a fun piece to write. It emerged out of a friendly debate I was having with Francisco Toro. His piece, Our Deep Blue Moment, was an optimistic take on AI through the prism of chess. It was a smart piece. I respected it, and I fundamentally disagreed with it. I'm an avid chess player. I've been playing for a long time. And for me, the best part about it wasn't even necessarily the games themselves. It was the kibitzing sessions that followed them. This is a very familiar scene. In any city park, in any chess club, anywhere in the world, the game finishes, and then everybody starts arguing about it. And recently, I've noticed that doesn't really exist anymore. Somebody reaches into their pocket, pulls out a phone, and a supercomputer or AI program tells them what should have happened in the game. And I felt that something incalculable was lost in that, and actually was a good way to talk about larger issues in art. There's a tendency to view activities like chess as being about getting at some sort of objective logical truth or being better than an opponent. But that's not really the heart of the activity. It's hard as that it's fun, it's social, and actually it's an opportunity to express something about yourself. That's all the more the case in art, which is about saying something about one's human condition. There's a rhetorical framework around AI claiming that it's part of progress, that it's going to make us better at all sorts of things. But my argument in the piece is that there's something we lost with it, something core about ourselves that we're unlikely to ever get back. So that's the piece, a pessimistic take on AI. Hope you check it out. Sam Khan's piece called Our Deep Blue Obsolescence was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Timothy Garten-Ash. Timothy is the Professor of European Studies at Oxford University. He is the author of many books, including most recently Homelands, A Personal History. And he's one of the most distinguished historians of Central and Eastern Europe in particular, but really a great connoisseur of Europe as a whole. In our conversation, we talked about how Europe has changed for the better and the worse for the last 50 years. We attempt collectively critical assessments of both Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron. And we think about what Europe would need to do in order to stand up for its democratic values in a serious way over the coming decades. Timothy Garten-Ash, welcome to the podcast. Great pleasure to be with you. So you've been one of the most important chroniclers of Europe and European history for many years, but your latest book is in many ways your most personal. It's a memoristic account of what Europe is and how Europe has developed. To ask the sort of broadest and most obvious question first, is there such a thing as Europe? Most certainly is, so much so that there are at least five different senses of what Europe is. (laughs) And so the book, which is called Homelands, A Personal History of Europe, which is a kind of summation of the 50 years I've been writing about studying, traveling in Europe, the most important sense for me personally is the Europe of lived experience, which has this unique feature that one can be as a European at home abroad, I'm in Paris, I'm in Berlin, I'm in Budapest, in Warsaw. I'm clearly abroad, but I'm also very much at home, hence the title Homelands. 
Americans only have the one homeland, as in homeland security. Chinese only have the one homeland. But this, for me, is in a way the most attractive and unique quality of Europe. But then, of course, you have the very ill-defined geographical area. You have a sense of a core Europe, which is very, very strongly present in European consciousness and history, somewhere around the Carolingian core, somewhere around the Holy Roman Empire. You have Europe as an idea, an ideal, a set of values. Bronisław Geremek, the great uh, Polish dissident, uh, subsequently foreign minister and historian, once said to me, you know, for me, Europe is a platonic essence. I don't think there's any other continent of which that could be said. And finally, of course, you have a complex set of institutions of which the European Union is clearly the most important, but not the only one. And so the fascination of Europe is precisely in the multiple complex interactions and often confusions and indeed contradictions between these five different dimensions. So let's go through a few of those. One interesting thing about Europe, particularly when you're looking at it from the United Kingdom, as you are in some ways, or perhaps some of the other countries that have historic links to the Anglophone world, like the Netherlands and so on, is that you might think, well, there's a kind of set of connections that Britain has to a place like Italy or France, but there's also an obvious set of connections that it has to countries like the United States and Australia. So as you're giving your first definition, I guess I'm wondering, do you think it's impossible for... A Briton, or for that matter, for you know a Dutch person or a Dane, to feel at home abroad in New York City or Los Angeles in the same kind of way that they might feel uh, you know at home abroad in Athens or Rome. Yeah, it's an excellent question. By the way, needless to say, I'm a very untypical British European, and so I'm looking at it as much from Warsaw or Prague as I am from London or Oxford. It's an excellent question, and it goes to this ill-defined borders of Europe. I mean, in many ways, Canada would be a perfect member state of the EU, right? If we say European values, it doesn't actually mean that these values are unique to Europe, because in many ways they're shared across the Atlantic. But what I think is unique is that you have this assemblage of actually more than 40 countries, where each in each can have that experience of being at home abroad. And such an assemblage of, as it were, mutual homelands is, I think, unique. That's very interesting. What does make Europe distinctive if it isn't those values which are shared in some ways, you know, with Canada, arguably the United States and Australia and other countries around the world? One interesting critique that people have pushed of the European project in the last years was to say that Europe is in some senses provincial or perhaps in the most extreme versions of that critique, even implicitly racist or colonialist or white supremacist, since it privileges you know, a set of nations that are historically Western and white and so on over other kinds of countries in the world that might share democratic values as well, that might share some of those aspirations. And so how, I guess, do we construct an understanding of what Europe is and I know that you're entirely on board of that project, but that emphasizes the universality of some of those values, its deep presence in other regions of the world, and which, of course, ensures that within Europe's borders itself, the continent remains open to people who uh, may have been born in Europe, whose parents may have been born in Europe, who may have immigrated, but who have ancestral roots outside of the continent. Yeah, it's such a great question. I mean, I would separate the answer into two parts, internalist and externalist. 
I think on the internalist side, there's a perfectly good answer, which is this is the country which gave us the modern nation state, which gave us a global state system, which had centuries of conflict and which is now trying to find a better way of very diverse people and peoples living together well in peace and freedom, which, after all, is core to the liberal project. So it is, as it were, an international, transnational, supranational version of the liberal project. And absolutely essential to that is that people with a migration background, and I carefully use that rather clunky German formula, mentioned with Migrationshintergrund, because they're not immigrants. They're people in the second and third generation. They're people with a migration background. Should absolutely feel at home in Europe and should not just in theory have equal rights, but in practice have equal life chances. And so I do devote a good deal of space in the book to demonstrating how relatively badly many European countries are doing that. For example, France. So internally, within our frontiers, I think there's an adequate way to answer that question framed in terms of, if you will, universalist liberal enlightenment values. Much more difficult is the relationship with the outside world, where the EU falls into a very easy, almost neo-colonial rhetoric in which it preaches these values as if Europe throughout its history has somehow been the incarnation of these values, whereas in fact for the rest of the world, Europe has been the source of colonialism and oppression and exploitation, and at the same time is actually creating what I call a new iron curtain around the frontiers of the EU or more accurately of the Schengen area, so that it is night and day, if not life and death, which side of those enormous barriers you are. And I went to see them in Ceuta, the Spanish enclave on the north coast of Africa. It looks exactly like the old Iron Curtain. So that I think there is one of the most difficult questions for Europe today is Europe is a universalist project or it's nothing. That is a distinctive feature of our version of European values. Of course, there are other anti-liberal versions of European values. But we are very much not practicing what we preach in terms of universalism. And there's a very big question what it would mean to take those universalist values more seriously in our external policy. Well, what would it mean? <laughs> I think I frankly don't have a really good answer, but I have some parts of an answer. I mean, first of all, there have to be safe, legal paths for immigration. There has to be swift, humane treatment of illegal migrants and refugees. And that's clearly something where we're falling down very badly. For example, the EU has been complicit either in allowing people coming on small boats across the Mediterranean simply to drown, or in having them caught by the Libyan Coast Guard and sent back to detention camps, which are utterly inhumane, like some of the worst camps in European history. So that's a, an immediate starting point. Secondly, I think, at the very least, we need to do much more on development aid. The fact that we're, when many European countries are not even meeting the 0.7% target... Uh, and that, of course, includes market access, more significant market access. And then there's a difficult set of questions 
around how a liberal international polity relates to illiberal great powers. I mean, starting with Turkey, China, to a significant degree, India, and of course, Russia. And to what extent we have to, as it were, compromise on our values because of our interests, or make a triage of our values, because that's the world we're in, an increasingly post-Western world where most of the other great powers don't share these values. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of critique of what Europe has been for the last decades, which leans into some of the same themes, which is to say that, you know, when you uh, look at Denmark or Germany or Austria, they're very appealing countries that, despite the presence of certain internal problems, are probably among the most humane and affluent societies that have existed in the history of humanity, and that is certainly no mean feat. But in some ways, they have existed by outsourcing some of the dirty work. So one of the ways in which we've outsourced the dirty work is around migration. So, you know, we're perfectly uh, humane and legalistic and treat asylum seekers who somehow come to our borders really very well uh, in many respects. But all of that system can be kept up in part because not very pleasant figures like warlords in Libya or like Recep Erdogan, a dictator in Turkey, are making sure, because of deals we've cut with them, that the number of people who actually reach our borders is relatively low. You might think, sort of extending that critique a little bit further, that European foreign policy has in some ways been similar, that particularly a kind of more moralistic and pacifist wing within European politics has looked down on the terrible Americans with a militaristic Wild West cowboy swaggering attitude for, you know, having such a big army and, you know, going around playing World Cup. But of course, European and Western European, more specifically security, has for many decades been dependent on precisely that Wild West Cup in a way of which even many European elites have not always been fully aware when they make these critiques. So you know, what would it mean for Europe to be able to stand up for its values, to live up to its values, but without outsourcing some of the dirty work in these various ways, whether it is to people who are keeping migrants off of European shores or whether it is, for that matter, to the people who continue to provide a lot of European security. So I think there's a great deal to this critique, I have to say. I think they're very pertinent questions. And interestingly, Yasha, I think it connects back to the very lively debate about our colonial past. John Stuart Mill's day job was at the East India Company. There's a real sense in that wonderful edifice of 19th century liberalism was built on the profits of empire in multiple ways. And there is a serious sense in which something of the same kind can be said, for example, about Germany today. I mean, Constanze Seltzenmüller's famous line that the German model has been to export its energy needs to Russia, its um, export growth to China, and its security needs to the United States. Uh, so three ways, dependency. And indeed, you know, while the energy dependency has been rather dramatically reduced, the other two dependencies are still very much in place. Ukraine would no longer be an independent country today were it not for the United States and the speed and scale with which it came to Ukraine's aid. 
and German business has absolutely no intention of getting out of China anytime soon. Volkswagen has a factory in Xinjiang down the road as what can quite accurately be called concentration camps. Uh, genocide is in place. So I think it's a huge dilemma. And the answer is, to the extent that there is a good answer, we have to diversify, we have to de-risk, we have to make sure we're not so dependent on, for example, China, that when push comes to shove over Taiwan, we simply can't afford to take what our values and our belief in liberal international order would suggest should be our position, and we have to build up our own defense. This is what struck me uh, as particularly interesting in the recent debate about Emmanuel Macron's remarks concerning Taiwan, that to caricature a little bit, you could say that there's two sort of uh, sides of a debate in European foreign policy. One is to say, look, we're a firm part of Western alliance and you know, we will continue to be the closest partners of the United States. And, you know, while we should probably build a little bit more military capacity and so on, effectively we will continue in Constance's well-chosen words to outsource our security needs to the United States. And then there's the other part of the debate that seems to be saying, well, you know, we can't entirely trust the United States to continue to engage in the world. And, you know, we might have a mad person like Donald Trump in charge again. And so, therefore, we should just balance between the United States and China. And in the way that Macron expressed this point, it seemed very much as though we were saying, all right, so we'll let people have the spheres of influence and we'll accommodate ourselves to whatever values they have, uh, you know, as long as we're able to play various great powers off each other and continue to do business. And what strikes me about this is not what some people seem to interpret Macron's remarks as, which is a kind of grandiose, ambitious uh, vision for, 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 for a more powerful Europe. It's actually the, the smallness of that ambition. That ambition is effectively to balance between Europe and the United States in the way that you know, Vietnam or Singapore feel that they need to balance between China and the United States. So you know, what would it look like for Europe to be able to be more autonomous in that kind of way, to be able to stand up for its own ideas and values in a way that doesn't just outsource its economic insecurity and so on needs to other players, but without that reducing Europe to, you know, an area that cannot actually stand up and consistently live up to its values, which you say help to define what Europe is, because it simply is stuck balancing between different powers in the way that it seems to me Macron was suggesting we should accept. It's a great question. I literally just yesterday reread the original version of Macron's interview in Les Echos, and I couldn't help thinking of Walt Whitman, I am large, I contain multitudes, because as always with Macron, there are so many different thoughts flying around, not all of which are entirely consistent. But nonetheless, when he talks of the danger of being vassals, when he says how well, we need to be a third pole, by the way, an idea that China would be absolutely delighted by. China would be delighted by a Europe which is distinguishing itself from the United States, notably over Taiwan, and wanting to be a, another pole in a multipolar world. He is essentially articulating a Euro-Golist vision, a vision of strategic autonomy of a Europe which defines itself as distinct from, and indeed in some cases in opposition to the United States, while at the same time saying, and he says this in the interview, the most important thing is European unity. And what he has once again demonstrated, that while proclaiming the importance of European unity, 
the Eurogirlist vision always achieves precisely the opposite, right? So if you think about what happened over the Iraq war, where a very strong version of a Eurogolist vision was articulated by Jacques Derrida and Althusser and others and Habermas, that actually divided Europe down the middle. What's so fascinating about looking at European public opinion over the war in Iraq, and, and you know the polling my Oxford project uh, did with ECFR a few months ago, is that in the last year, European public opinion has actually become much more united. German public opinion and Polish public opinion are much closer, even than their governments are. Why? Partly because they think it's a good cause to defend Ukraine, but also because this is being done not against the United States, but in strategic partnership with the United States. That's a long way of getting to the point that my view remains absolutely that the only way to get a stronger Europe, a genuine law puissance, which I very much believe in, European power, which can defend our interests and values, is the Euro-Atlanticist vision, one which sees us in a strategic partnership with the United States, where we do more for our own defense, we become less dependent on countries like China, we de-risk in uh, Ursula von der Leyen's term, but understanding that in a global context of a post-Western world, this is going to be in a strategic partnership with the United States and not as some illusion of an autonomous European superpower. Yeah, that seems very convincing to me that the right way for Europe to safeguard its way of life and its fundamental political values is to continue to be in a close partnership with the United States as long as America stands up for those values while building the capabilities to defend those values more effectively in the world and particularly within its own borders than the continent is capable of doing at the moment. And that hedges against the risk which, even as you know, a proud dual European-American citizen, I'm deeply conscious of, which is that there might come a moment in which the United States really does abandon those values and Europe has to stand up for those values apart from the United States, perhaps in certain points in conflict with the United States, but it also actually makes it more likely that we can sustain this partnership because it'll be harder for populist politicians in the United States to claim that Europe is free-riding on American security guarantees and other forms of spending, as indeed Europe has been free-riding in many respects for a number of decades. And particularly in what I call the post-wall era, the era that goes from the fall of the Berlin Wall on the 9th of November 1989, and I think ended on the 24th of February 2022. I couldn't agree more with that. And by the way, of course, you know, as Europeans, we are very conscious of the fact that Donald Trump might be the next president of the United States, and therefore that challenge might be coming our way quite soon. And in particular, if he pulls the rug from Ukraine, then there is a very immediate challenge. What is Europe actually going to do to defend uh, Ukrainian democracy and Ukrainian independence from Russian imperialism? The other quick point I do want to make is that while I made this contrast between internalist and externalist, internalist where one can tell a good story, externalist where there are huge problems, of course, one notable exception to that is Hungary. I mean, it is a deeply shocking fact which for someone like me, whose whole life was devoted to the you know, cause of the liberation and democratization of Central and Eastern Europe, or Europe whole and free, 
that we have a full member state of the European Union that is no longer a democracy, that most political scientists would now agree is a competitive authoritarian system, and by the way, a rather stable, consolidated competitive authoritarian system. And so the other great challenge to the European Union is to make sure it defends its own values and interests internally as well as externally. Something that Europe and particularly European institutions for the last 10 years have been remarkably bad at doing, the extent to which the EU has pushed back against Hungary has increased a little bit in the last year or two. But in my judgment, it was a case of far too little and far too late. I think it's underestimated as one of the failures. I mean, we have the European poly crisis, so we have multiple crises one could talk about, Brexit, refugee crisis, Ukraine, and so on. But I think we talk too little about this one because it's one of the most direct failures of the European Union because it's not just that the EU has allowed this to happen. It has facilitated it, notably by massive transfers of billions of EU funds which have been used by Viktor Orban since 2010, so now for going on 13 years, actually to erode democracy and consolidate his own power. You invoked February 24th, 2022 as in some ways the end of Europe's post-war order. Of course, Olaf Scholz, the Chancellor of Germany, held a much-noted speech in the immediate aftermath saying that we had reached a Zeitenwende, a turning over of historical eras. To what extent do you think that the European public, or for that matter, you know, European policy elites, have actually become conscious of that turning over of eras and are acting on that insight? I don't want to underplay how far countries like Germany have moved in the last year, I think in terms of providing assistance to Ukraine and so on, after a very, very sluggish start, some important things have happened. But I still remain skeptical, and not just because of Macron's recent comments, that there's any real appetite in Europe for bearing the short and medium-term costs that would be required for the continent to actually recognize that it is, you know, once again living in a dangerous neighborhood, that the movement globally is towards you know, rising powers whose values clash quite fundamentally with those of European countries and citizens, and that therefore quite a significant shift in policy and outlook would be required for the continent to live up to the meaning and the importance of this Zeitenwende. Germany fell prey to the hopes and illusions of what I call the post-war era more than any other European country. The historiosophical mistake of believing the way history had gone through 1989 and the 1990s and early 2000s was the way history was going to go. That mistaking history with a small H or as a product of conjuncture and chance and choice and individual leadership and will for history with a capital H, a Hegelian process of inevitable progress towards freedom, and also the illusion that essentially peace could be secured by diplomacy and economic interdependence and didn't need the military dimension of power. So you're absolutely right, Germany has moved a long way, but it had by far the longest way to go. I think the short answer to your question, Yasha, is that that understanding 
is powerfully present in Eastern Europe and only very weakly present, broadly speaking, the further west you go in Spain or in Portugal, much less so, and perhaps in France. And therefore, as so often in modern European history, the key is Germany. If Germany itself became serious about what everything that would be needed to make a reality of this Seitenwende, from building up military power to reducing economic dependence on authoritarian regimes, of which, by the way, German business is a signal case, to the agenda of the eastward of enlargement of the European Union to include both the Western Balkans, Ukraine, Moldova, and potentially Georgia, which in my view should be the strategic agenda for the next 10 to 15 years for the EU, that, as Scholz himself has pointed out, necessarily requiring a further deepening of the European Union, then I would think that we have a chance of answering your question with yes. Do I see that consciousness pervading the German political debate and the German political class at the moment? Alas, no. Yeah, in my impression, there's, you know, some lip service to Zeitenwende and the fact that changes are required, but it goes at best skin deep. Partly, if I may, just quickly, because you know very well the German word Besitzstandswerung, defending what you have or hanging on to what you have. And Germany is a very defensive status quo society, which has a deep historical consciousness that twice in the last hundred years, it's lost everything and then built up again. And so there's that very defensive status quo posture. Let's hang on to this very great level of prosperity and freedom, let's also say, and of course, welfare provision and maybe three cars, even if they're electric cars, (laughs) and three holidays a year. And it's very difficult to reconcile that with the kind of action that is needed, the, the really quite radical change that is needed to address both the geopolitical challenge and the geoeconomic challenge, and we haven't talked about the global warming challenge. Your book is a wonderful sweep of European history, and it's very hard to summarize in a conversation, but beyond some of the obvious changes in Europe over the last 50 years, including the fact that 50 years ago, uh, Europe was very much a divided continent, in which you know half of it was under the imperial dominance of the Soviet Union. What are some of the more surprising ways that Europe has changed. And, you know, perhaps I'll ask you to start with the positive changes. How do you think in ways that don't immediately meet the eye, Europe has become a better, happier continent today than it was when you first started to extensively travel and discover the continent and spend time in so many different parts of it? So I started traveling in the early 1970s. And at that time, more Europeans lived under dictatorships than lived in democracies. People today always forget that. We did the numbers. If you include the European republics of the Soviet Union, 389 million Europeans lived in dictatorships, only 289 million in democracies. The dictatorships, of course, included Spain, Portugal, and Greece. And by the way, Turkey was an interesting case. Only 37 million people somewhere in between, hard to say, democradora. So that has obviously been a massive change for the better. And of course, a change that has not been experienced so positively 
by a large part of our own societies, as we know in any analysis of populism, but for uh, many millions of Europeans, like a generation of Central and East European students who've come to study with us at Oxford or in London or Paris or wherever, a transformation of life chances. Beside prosperity, obviously, welfare provision has significantly improved. And I would emphasize two other things. The dramatic transformation in the position of women in the last 50 years. I mean, one of the really positive changes that 68 initiated in its feminist version was a dramatic change in the position of women, incomparable. I mean, if someone had gone to sleep in 1960 three and woke up today, they wouldn't recognize that change. And last but not least, what I started talking about at the beginning, Europeans know each other in ways they have never done before in history. Because what we forget is that most of European history, most Europeans never left their own region, let alone their own country. And it's only since the 1960s, 70s, with the growth of mass travel, that most Europeans have been to at least another European country and have really got to know each other in quite different ways. That was a great list of good news, but obviously I now have to ask you about the bad news. So apart from the fact that I have 50 years of notebooks, experiences, study, reflections, the main impulse for writing this book was a political one with a small p, connected to your notion of the good fight, which in my case is a good fight for a Europe, Poland, free, a liberal Europe, which is that I would say since 2008, and by the way, one of the interesting things I found in working on the book is that for Europe, 9-11 is not such a big historical turning point. It is for the Middle East, it is for the United States, but for us it's 2008. The combination of the great financial crisis and Putin's annexation of two great chunks of Georgia. From that point on, you have just one crisis after another. The financial crisis segues into the Great Recession, the Eurozone crisis. Then, of course, you have the refugee crisis. You have Ukraine 2014, the turning point at which the West failed to turn. Brexit, Trump, anti-liberal populism in countries like Hungary and Poland, but also Marine Le Pen and Italy and others, all the way down to the largest war in Europe since 1945. So, that's the bad news. And the impulse, the political impulse in this book was in effect, to put it very simply, to say to my fellow Europeans, we have achieved the best Europe we have ever had. Or if you want to put it with Church of the Worst Possible Europe, apart from all the other Europes we've tried from time to time, but it is now really seriously under threat and we have to mobilize to defend it. And so for me, the question now is, whether we are indeed going to see that kind of popular mobilization to defend and extend what we have achieved. And if the largest war in Europe since 1945 doesn't make us wake up and do that, what is? Where would that mobilization come from? Are you counting on a bottom-up mobilization, a hope of people recognizing the stakes of this and demanding a more courageous response from their leaders? Or are you hoping on political leadership. I must admit that I'm somewhat skeptical on both. I think on the former, I think the sympathies of most Europeans are rightly with Ukraine and broadly speaking with the liberal cause. 
I'm not as much of a pessimist about the state of public opinion on these big questions or, for that matter, on some of the demographic change that has transformed Europe over the course of the last 50 years, as many others are. But I don't see the appetite for, you know, going and demanding from politicians that we make sacrifices, demanding from politicians that we take risks that might challenge Währung. And in terms of political leadership, when we're thinking of the two most visible, transformative, or at least most powerful, perhaps most praised European leaders of the last 15, 20 years, uh, of a period since 2008. I suppose you would have on the one side Emmanuel Macron, who has remade the political system of one of the historically two most important member states of the European Union, but whose vision and foreign policy, as we discussed earlier in the podcast is at least unfocused and arguably worse than that. And then the other person, of course, would be Angela Merkel, the longtime former leader of the other most important European Union state. And it seems to me that all of the things you've said so far in this conversation should lead one to a rather harsh judgment of Angela Merkel. When you look at the big challenges of the moment, climate change, you mentioned we haven't talked about much. I don't think that Angela Merkel's decision to get out of atomic energy and rely mostly on importing coal from Poland instead will age all that well. That's a minor point. You know, the euro crisis, I mean, Europe did get through the euro crisis and we somehow muddled through. And I suppose you could count that as a half success. I think the amount of suffering that was imposed on southern Europe and the way in which the crisis was slowly resolved while still leading real risks in case of the next economic crisis coming along in structural terms makes me more inclined to view this as a case of uh, glass half empty. Then there's the refugee crisis where I suppose she may score some points for I felt that Germany sort of slid into its stance on this and Merkel never communicated it very clearly. The cost of the refugee crisis and Germany's stance in it has probably been the permanent establishment of a far-right populist party in the German Bundestag and most of its state parliaments. So you know, perhaps we can say this is a glass half full rather than half empty, but I don't think it's more than half. And then, of course, there is you know, her advocacy for a deep economic partnership with China, her pretty soft stance on Vladimir Putin and the failure to react, as you were saying, to the annexation of parts of Georgia, the annexation of parts of Ukraine. And there's the relationship with China, which was continuing to deepen the economic dependence of the United States on exports to China. The final point, which is, you know, the fact that under the leadership of Angela Merkel, Fidesz, the party of Viktor Orban, continued to be a member of the same political faction in the European Parliament as the Christian Democrats from Germany in the EPP. So you sort of take all of that together and I have to say one has to come to at least a skeptical judgment of Macron, especially on foreign policy, and a very decidedly negative judgment of Angela Merkel. So do you disagree with that assessment? And if not, do you have any hope for more visionary political leaders who are around the corner and who can uh, take over the steering wheel and direct us down a different path? The paradox of Angela Merkel is that she personifies so many of the good qualities of post-war Europe. The East German who becomes the most powerful person in Europe. Civil, civilian, modest, always concerned to find negotiated solutions, 
at least in theory, to uphold the rule of law and so on. And for most Germans, this was a very good period, and they felt themselves personified by this figure of Angela Merkel. And let me quickly add that despite what, what may come across as a very harsh judgment, I, I don't say it with any rancor, because I do like and admire Angela Merkel for all of these same reasons. But let me come to the second part of the paradox, which is I agree with every point in your indictment, I think, on almost all the big strategic calls. In my view, with the exception of the refugee crisis, okay, she might have communicated better, she wasn't, but I think the big decision was the right one. But much too slow to react to the beginning of the Eurozone crisis, allowing a really dangerous narrative of the profligate South being parasitic on the virtuous, hardworking North to become established, the panicky getting out of civil nuclear power, which makes the energy transition so much more difficult. 2014, not recognizing, and this is someone who speaks Russian, who knows Russian history, who had a picture of Catherine the Great on her study wall, not recognizing that this is the Russian empire striking back and actually becoming more energy dependent on Russia. And also failures to modernize German society in many ways, for example, digitally. So I think the verdict of history is going to be you know, very critical indeed on Angela Merkel. Olaf Scholz still has a chance to find a better place in history. And so the answer to your question is, I think Kaya Kalas of Estonia, for example, has been a remarkable leader, had a great impact. Um, I think there are, the Scandinavian leaders have been very impressive. I mean, there are, you know, the very impressive figures in the European Parliament, but in the absolutely key positions, I don't see the people yet who have that agenda. So the hope has to be, and Yasha, I think you said, am I counting on it? I'm absolutely not counting on it. This is pessimism of the intellect, optimism of the will. This is what I want to persuade my fellow Europeans to do. But if you ask me just as an analyst, do I think it's going to happen? I think it's more likely than not not to happen. But a student in Göttingen said to me the other day, you've talked about these key generations who made Europe, the 14ers who were shaped by the First World War, the 39ers, the 68ers, the 89ers. Will there be a generation of 22ers? That was her question in Göttingen, in the west of Germany. Will there be a generation for which the full-scale invasion of Ukraine has been such a moment of challenge to everything we believe in that there is that response? I have to say, if I'm honest, analytically, I'm skeptical because I think it's been an absolutely formative experience for East Europeans for Poles, for Slovaks, for people in the Baltic states, maybe some in Scandinavia. But I don't think it has been for most uh, Portuguese, Spaniards, Italians, French, even Germans. So analytically, I rather doubt, well, it will have that impact, but one has to hope that it will. Another thing we've alluded to with Hungary, but that's also a broader phenomenon, is you know the great expansion of freedom after 1989. And then the danger of a contraction of freedom in the last years. I agree with your assessment that Hungary is no longer a liberal democracy, but it is at best a competitive authoritarian regime. We may not quite be there yet in Poland and a number of other countries, but there's very real risk of ending up in the same place. How should we understand 
the causes of this. I've always been very struck by Ivan Krushta's characterization of this. Roughly speaking, he said, but we thought of 1989 as this liberal democratic revolution in which people's aspiration for universal values like individual freedom and collective self-government came to fruition against great odds because of the bravery of civil society actors and millions of people in the street. But in a way, what we're seeing today is not simply people who become traitors to their own youth, people like Orban who helped to lead those movements, betraying them, but rather a kind of civil war between different strands of those movements, that we should reinterpret those movements as always having been, in part, in one strand, for these liberal democratic values, in another, a nationalist uprising against colonial oppression, and a third, perhaps a conservative religious revolt against some of the secularist values of a communist regime. Do you agree with that characterization? And if not, how can we make sense of these countries in Central Europe that have fought so hard for their freedom, apparently being so close to having that freedom taken away, or perhaps to some extent to giving it up? Yeah, it's clearly correct that both religion and nationalism played an important role. For example, in Poland, which was the icebreaker in the emancipation and eventual liberation of East Central Europe in the 1980s. So that was, to some extent, always there. Well, first of all, I think the explanation is multifactorial. And so I think we should be careful to try and reduce it, to be too hedgehoggy in Isaiah Berlin's term, reduce it to a single factor. But a key factor is that what we call freedom measured in some collective, simplistic, you know, Freedom House aggregate ranking, didn't feel like freedom to many millions of people in these societies. That they felt themselves in some ways losers from the transition. Uh, They saw growing not just economic inequality, but also the inequality, what I call the inequality of attention and respect, you know, in rural southeastern Poland, eastern Poland, in small towns, and so on. So, you know, the old argument is populism, culture, and economics. Of course, it's both. And you had that combination, in addition to which um, you had the specific features of the transition. Namely, Ernest Gellner talked about the price of velvet, the price of a negotiated transition, which is that the former elites, the nomenclatura of the communist systems, were able to exchange political power for economic power. So many of them were the great winners of the transition. So it's not just that I'm sitting in my one-bedroom leaky flat in Gdańsk as a worker who participated in the Solidarity Movement, and there are these super-rich people I see on television in Warsaw. It's those super-rich people of the former communists and the former secret police. And that produces a very powerful cocktail, which a populist party like Law and Justice can then sew together in a narrative of the incomplete revolution. If I take this at the level of thinking about liberalism, I don't think the heart of the problem is captured by the term neoliberalism. But I do think you get closer to it if you take the argument between a sort of minimalist classic version of negative liberty a la Isaiah Berlin, which says in the old saw, a beggar is free to dine at the Ritz. And a more egalitarian liberalism, a la Dworkin or Dauendorf or the Amartya Sen, Martha Nussbaum capabilities approach, which actually says 
you need much more than that. You need what Ralph Dandorf called a common floor. You need a level of housing. You need a level of education. You need a level of healthcare. You need a level of job opportunities. And you need a level of public recognition, recognition respect. And so I think if one takes it back to the question to liberalism, that is the conclusion to be drawn from the illiberal democracy, i.e. democracy in a state of decay that we see in Poland. And it's fundamentally the same conclusion that is to be drawn from dangerous nationalist populism, anti-liberal populism in Western Europe. Before we close, I want to change topic for a moment because your penultimate book was about free speech and 10 principles for free speech in a global connected world. The topic of free speech is important to me and has been a recurring theme on this podcast. What is the core of a case for free speech in your mind and what is it that debates about free speech commonly lack at the moment? First of all, quickly, how I came to write that book. You know, there have been really two leitmotifs of my life's work, which are Europe and freedom. And um, um, sometime in the mid-2000s, I thought, what, what do you want your next big project to be? Are you going to write a book about Europe or is it going to be some aspect of freedom? And then I said to myself, well, freedom is the first order value. So let's do something on freedom. By the way, Yasha, I'm very glad I didn't sit down to write a book about Europe in 2006, because it would have shared the massive historical optimism of that time. So it's quite fortunate. And then I narrowed it down to the challenge of combining freedom and diversity, which is clearly absolutely central to contemporary Europe because we've become multicultural societies, and then the cutting edge of that, the issue of free speech. So that's how I got to that point, and then I found the global challenges. So very quickly, key arguments for free speech, my acronym STGD, self-expression and self-realization, truth-seeking, the classic John Stuart Mill argument, good governance, which is the core argument of the First Amendment, You need free speech for good governance, all the way back, of course, to ancient Athens, and living with diversity. You cannot live with diversity well unless you know where other people are coming from. It's a shorthand, but I think it's quite a useful shorthand. And what is, of course, missing in the contemporary debate is nuance and the complexity of the challenges that we face, right? so that too much for the right, it's all about woke and cancel culture. And too much for the left, it's all about the state or about the American platforms. And actually, it's a much more complex picture in which for all the transnational actors, for all the global scale of the platforms, actually each national information environment is quite different. And even in the same global conditions for free speech, the U.S. information environment differs fundamentally from the British information environment, which again differs fundamentally from the German one. So that actually what one needs is a conversation about each specific information environment and what its specific needs are, right? So, for example, in the British case, it's a battle for the defense of the BBC, I mean, the reason we are not a hyperpolarized society after Brexit can be given in three letters, BBC. In the German or Polish case, there may be some other area of the information environment, which is absolutely crucial. Now, of course, complex nuance arguments are not good ones for a sort of simple media debate, but 
I think that's a reality. I know that's what you're alluding to. I've come to the somewhat depressing belief that 90% of the nonfiction books that sell really well, and I'm excluding here sort of you know memoirs and stuff like that, I'm talking about sort of political arguments, are books that can be summarized in six or seven words that everybody, or at least a very substantial portion of book buying public, already believe. This need not be bad books. So I have some disagreements with it. I think you know Thomas Piketty's book Capital is a very good book contributed to centering a very important debate, but it's, it can be summarized in, you know, what's inequality is terrible and it's getting worse. There's a lot more to the book than that, but it is the fact that it could be summarized in those seven words that could make it an unlikely commercial success. In other words, it's difficult to talk in a sophisticated, nuanced way about the information environment because of a defining characteristic of that information environment, which is profusion, and therefore the drastic competition for attention which is addressed by the old journalistic saw first simplify and then exaggerate. The end of Europe, the end of freedom, <laughs> the fall of democracy, whatever. Any publisher will push you to have that sort of dramatic, simplistic title. So to give a small illustration, several publishers tried to push me to call the last section of my book, the section on post-2008, falling so that you would have this simplistic narrative of the rise and fall of liberal Europe, right? But actually, no, it's not falling. That section is called faltering. And so I, I would continue insist on the need precisely for liberal voices to keep their attention to complexity and nuance, even in this information environment, which commercially is crying out for what Jakob Burkhardt called the terrible simplificateur. I have a last question for you. You alluded that you, you know, nearly wrote a book about Europe in 2006 and it would have been very optimistic and may not have aged well. There's always a temptation to think about the future in terms of projecting recent trends forward. And yet we know that there's always surprises. We don't know what the nature of a surprise is, but there's always some significant surprise. So if you allow me to put you in the uncomfortable position, not of making a prediction, but of saying, you know, here is a significant surprise, positive or negative, which may occur, which may, you know, look really obvious in 20 or 40 years when we're looking back at that period, but which most of us are not expecting now. Where would you go casting for that surprise? What kind of surprise do you think that might be? With the obvious caveats <laughs> that we don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, let alone in a few years' time, I'll give you two. The first is, at the moment, the Russian economy is holding up, the Putin system is holding up, the Russians are holding a great deal of territory. I am at this moment, top of my mind at the moment, is the question of whether the Ukrainian counteroffensive can actually succeed to getting down to the Sea of Azov, to threatening Crimea, and therefore to putting real pressure on Russia. But there is always a possibility of a non-linear development in a system like Putin's, in a dictatorship. It's absolutely solid until suddenly it crumbles, right? After all, that's what happened in 1917. There was a rout of the Russian armies, and then the Tsarist system collapsed. So that is one to watch. I'm not saying it's going to happen, but it's certainly possible. The second one is we have had our crisis in the West. Perhaps we're still having it. China has not yet had its crisis. But what I have observed in the last 15 years is a Chinese political system 
which in the early 2000s seemed to be moving away from Leninism towards a much more pragmatic, evolutionary developmental strategy, has returned to full-scale Leninism. So we have Leninist capitalism. And one thing we do know from a 100 years of history is that Leninism is not good at coping with the tensions and aspirations of mature societies and indeed mature economies. And so I think another one to watch without saying anything super optimistic about how China is actually in the end going to get back on a path to liberal democracy. I think that's behind us. But I think the tensions between Leninism and capitalism are visibly building up inside the Chinese system. And so it may not be at the end of the day that um, we're doing so spectacularly well, but our principal competitor may start doing rather badly. Timothy Garten-Ash, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Great pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.